to the Public Safety Innovators Podcast. Connecting you with experts and trendsetters who are leading innovation in law enforcement, private security, and personal protection. And now, your host, Adam Wills. Hey everybody, welcome to episode three of the Public Safety Innovators podcast. Today we are going to be speaking with Anthony D. Molina from Tactical Drone Concepts. Anthony has a holistic training and consulting program to help you get set up with your own drone program. Now, there are a lot of things to think about when setting up a drone program. Certifications, training, policies, and even more. Now, what Tony is going to help you do is make sure that you have everything squared away from the moment that you start looking into a drone program, including the proper selection of a drone that will meet your needs for the outcome you are trying to achieve. If you have been following what people are doing with drones these days, the opportunities are pretty much endless from mapping out crime scenes, mapping out traffic accident scenes, aerial reconnaissance, mapping, search and rescue, and plenty of other things that I haven't listed here. We're going to talk about some of these ideas in today's show, uses and applications, as well as different types of drones for those applications, and all of the things that you need to know when starting your drone program that you probably didn't think of. If you're not aware of some of the nuances behind starting your own drone program, you might be setting that program up for failure before you really even get it off the ground. So let's go ahead and dive into my interview with Anthony DiMolina of Tactical Drone Concepts. Hey, Tony, welcome to the Public Safety Innovators Podcast. It's great to have you on the show. Hey, Adam, thanks for having me. Yeah, so drones. I, I love drones, man. I've always been fascinated by drones. Um, and what they can do from a public safety, law enforcement, private security standpoint. Um, and you are certainly one of the experts in that field. And um, that's why I wanted to have you on the show to hear a bit more about what you guys are doing over there at Tactical Drone Concepts uh, and how you can uh, help out some guests of this show. Absolutely. So to kind of kick things off here, I, I guess what I'd, what I'd love to ask you first and foremost is to tell me, you know, what is the biggest problem that you help your customers solve? Uh, the biggest problem that I see in, in our vertical, in the public safety vertical, uh, which is expanding into the private security market, is that um, too many people look at a drone or a UAS as an independent tool. Um, to really um, use all the applications and, and get the most out of your UAS, you have to look at it as a program. So what we do is we help you move from that um, feeling that a drone is a tool to building an uh, aviation program with an unmanned platform. Okay, so I mean, that's obviously a common misconception, I guess you'd say, then, as well about uh, utilizing drones in this capacity. 
Absolutely, because uh, too many times it's like that there are sub programs that go into it. We uh, break your airborne program down into developing your safety program, um, developing your training program, developing um, your operations with your SOPs, um, and developing a holistic maintenance program so that um, you can take care of your assets and ensure that they're airworthy before flight. Um, All too often, people kind of uh, take shortcuts, I guess, when you're building your program and they don't look at the fine print. If you get uh, what's called a COA, Certificate of Authorization, um, to fly under the public use rules from the FAA, um, they require you to have your own training program. They're saying, okay, we're letting you follow, uh, we're going to allow you to follow your own rules. But you have to have that documented training program and going out and saying, oh, I fly once a week is not a training program. And and too many people just don't understand that. It's developing your um, capabilities and your mission sets for what you want to accomplish and have those documented and training to a standard. Okay, so I guess I'll be the first to admit uh, that, you know, being a former uh, law enforcement administrator myself, we, we were uh, likely guilty of a lot of these things that you're going to talk about today. Um, so I'm fascinated to hear about them. Uh, you know, we, uh, as many law enforcement agencies are out there, even the bigger ones, we were operating um, what what I would call was our drone program. Um, and I use that very loosely on kind of a bootstrapper's budget. And so, you know, we spent a lot of time doing our own research and, and figuring things out on our own you know, learning how to fly the drones on our own. We went through a lot of rotor blades and landing gear. Um, and so it's uh, it's really neat to hear that there's uh, an option out there uh, like you guys where uh, these law enforcement agencies, private security companies can um, seek out some expertise to overcome some of those misconceptions, those hurdles early on and get on the right path going forward. Absolutely. And most people are building their drone programs or building a drone program because they can't afford a helicopter or the budget is limited. Um, So we understand that. So that's why um, you really need to put more into your safety program because um, the uh, more economy, I guess, you're going on the aircraft, uh, the more risk that's involved. So the more mitigation that you have to develop to ensure that your community is safe when you're throwing that thing in the air. Yeah, absolutely. We talked earlier uh, before the show about how you guys kind of have two separate focuses, if you will, uh, with your company, and that's the services-oriented side of it and then a training side of it. Is that correct? Uh, correct. Yeah. Um, it. It's actually... I, I like to break it down into three parts in that um, I started out in the training arena. Um, I'm a California Post Master Instructor, so uh, developed a California Post Certified class um, to uh, build UAS programs. And then what we also do is we could manage the program for you. So if you don't want to uh, come up with your own training programs, your own safety program, um, we'll customize one for you that fits your needs, whether you're uh, whether you have two pilots or you have 200 pilots, um, we can take care of that for you. And then uh, the other, the last one is a totally integrated program where um, if if you're only using UAS um, occasionally, um, we'll send out pilots and, and we could do the mission for you. Okay. 
Well, let's talk more about that to start off with. Um, tell me a little bit more about that program and you know what, where do you operate? Are you do you cover the entire United States? Or are you just covering um, a certain part of the country? And, and what does that look like? Yeah, uh, for our training and our program management services, we cover the entire United States. Um, we can do that anywhere. Um, uh, you know, technology's great, just like we're talking now and you're in Colorado and I'm in California. Um, just like that, I can log on um, through uh, management programs and run your program, uh, then go out to see you, do your training, um, ensure that your pilots are uh, basically um, signed off, that they're proficient and they're current and uh, they meet the needs of the mission. Um, and we would do that on a 90-day basis um, and then remotely run the program and provide you with the transparency and accountability documentation that you could then provide to your um, community so that they're comfortable with what you're doing with your UAS program. Okay. And as far as the, the service that you offer or you actually come out and, and fly those missions for agencies, where do you do that? At? Current, currently, we are in um, the Southern California area. Um, we're using pilots that we've trained up as we get more pilots throughout the United States, that'll be expanding. But at this point it's uh, basically event driven. So if you have a major event and you need airborne support with an unmanned platform, um, we could send it to your location for limited durations. What types of missions do you typically fly for, for people? Um, right now we're getting into um Basically, just the Overwatch mode. Um, we've uh, during this COVID, we we just launched prior to COVID, so there hasn't been a whole lot um, lately. However, what we're planning on doing uh, major events, um, we have waivers already established for over people. We have the equipment to be able to fly over large gatherings. Um, uh, plans in place. Uh, we've helped. Uh, Companies like the Hollywood Bowl get their programs uh, up and running. So uh, they have UAS uh, assets in the air for their venues. Um, and if they expand, we can then augment them. Okay. So are you utilizing drones or are any of the agencies you guys are working with, are they utilizing them as part of the, uh, you know, a lot of the, the riots and those sort of things that are going on right now? Um. For, um, I'm retired from LAPD, and uh, during the protest era, um, they didn't. Uh, we have a preclusion that we will not put uh, UAS in the air over protest um, because we don't want that to uh, incite uh, the crowd thinking that they're being targeted and identified for later use. Um, but we do. Generally, the uh, people that are running your drone program get involved in the counter drone aspects of it. And um, I have stayed on as a reserve um, and I've gotten tons of phone calls of uh, having to do with other drones that are being flown in and around the area may or may not be targeting uh, the officers on the ground. So focusing primarily, I guess, here on your training program that you guys offer since that's the the most applicable to the audience uh here on the podcast as a whole uh, what, what would you say is the outcome that you're trying to help uh law enforcement agencies and private security companies achieve 
in working with you? Basically, the ultimate goal is for everyone to operate within the national airspace in, this, in a safe um, and efficient manner. As a, a helicopter guy, I basically flew in the military for 30 years, flew on LAPD for 20 years. Uh, as a helicopter guy, um, mixing with UAS is not a good thing. So uh, we want to make sure that our um, other agencies have a thorough understanding of the national airspace. They have that programmatic approach where they invest and uh, have a belief in their safety program. Um, they're training all the time. And then one of the other shortfalls that uh, seems to come up all the time is this over-reliance on autonomy. Um, autonomous aircraft are great. Um, however, they can't make all the decisions, especially in the tactical environment. Um, there are a number of times when um, the machine may make a decision that isn't in the best interest of the current tactical situation. And the other problem that comes into uh, the issue with autonomy is complacency. So how are we going to push to, uh, to ensure that complacency doesn't creep into um, uh, uh, our mission based on the autonomy of the aircraft? Well, we have to ensure that everybody is current and proficient, and they have to have a deep and thorough understanding of the machine. You have to know what the machine's going to do under all circumstances. And most people are very good at managing a flight. And what I mean by that is to launch it. Um, they can watch the battery life. They can um, tell it to go here, tell it to go there. But we break that down and start them from the very beginning so that they actually know how to fly an aircraft without um, any of the GPS or altitude hold or any of that, because invariably there's going to be a time when you actually have to fly the aircraft. And if you don't practice it, you won't be able to do it. It's, it's interesting how often um, I'll take somebody that says that they've been flying a UAS for two to three years and they have their Phantom four at home and they fly it with their kids. And then you give them an aircraft um, that doesn't have altitude hold. It doesn't have GPS and, it crashes right then and there because they they can't hold it in, in a position. Yeah, that's absolutely a great point. I mean, as with, with anything uh, training-wise, you know, if we don't practice those skills and keep them polished and up-to-date, we forget how to do those things properly, and um, complacency does happen. So I'm wondering if you can elaborate for me on your training courses. What, uh, you know, is there sort of a recommended selection process that you, you know, have people go through and how do you, how do you pick the right uh, person to, to go through this program or does that not really matter? And it's kind of for anybody that's interested, is it, is it simple enough um, that anybody who's interested can, can learn how to fly a drone? Depending on the size of your organization, um, I would be, how many people you actually send through. Ideally, if your organization is large enough and you're going to have uh, 10 or more pilots, ideally you would want to send four people through um, the program operators course. That course is our foundational um, course that teaches you how to build the program. So 
um, your program's going to have a safety officer. It's going to have a training officer. You're going to have your operations officer and you're going to have your maintenance officer. That way you share the wealth of all that um, uh, work that's going to that's be needed to uh, be part of your program. Because all too often, um, I, I have not come across anybody who is just a UAS guy. It's an ancillary duty. Um, they've thrown that on top of about 12 other things that the person has to do. So the more we can break this up and divide the tasks, the better. So if you're starting your program out, you have 10 to 12 um, officers, um, send the four to the program operators course. We also have a basic operators course where um, we teach you um, how to fly the aircraft, um, maneuvering the aircraft with with out all that um, autonomy that I was talking about, and then the individual pilot uh, skills such as the preventative maintenance and the um, uh, safety systems and doing your risk assessment and your safety surveys for your uh, uh, flights. Um, we also do um, uh, a night program. Uh, the FAA re uh, requires that everybody be trained in night visual illusions um, and uh, night physiology. Um, we also teach you how to go through and get your night waivers because that is something else that you would have to be able to do. And then um, our most attended class is our tactical operators course. Um, and that's where you get into basically the meat and potatoes of what you want to do with your aircraft where you're operating um, in a tactical environment, whether you're using the UAS on point, whether you're using it on overwatch uh, in an overwatch mode, whether you're doing interior operations or whether you're doing teaming concepts where you're using a drone with a canine or with your SWAT team and the training aspects and everything that um, you need to consider when you're going down that road. Um, okay. And then we also get into the counter drone aspects of it and we have a uh, two day counter drone class uh, because invariably the people that are the UAS operators are the guys that are going to get the call to say, hey, is this guy violating something flying his drone? So uh, we do have a two day uh, counter drone class and the students in that class actually get to use counter drone equipment and basically red team a uh, simulated uh, critical infrastructure site. Awesome. So with your program operators course, um, you know, when you're really dealing with the overarching policies and training that uh, are conducted within the agency that's uh, implementing a drone program, do you help agencies with coming up with model policies and that sort yes. of thing? Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, we'll walk them through. I have uh, a number of examples from different agencies that they can take a look at, um, see what fits. Every agency is different. And then I uh, sit down with them one-on-one -on -one and we work through what's going to work for their agency and what won't. Um, the thing to remember when you go down this path is all too often I run, I run into a guy that says, oh yeah, we're starting a program. Um, we just bought a DJI uh, Matrice 210. And it's like, okay, well, what do you want to do? Well, we want SWAT to take it interior and blah, blah. Well, that's not the right aircraft for what you want to do. So it's a, you have to come up with a capabilities-based plan where you're identifying your mission essential task list up front, and then you search through the aircraft that are available to see which aircraft will give you your biggest bang for your buck in that mission set that you've pre-identified. 
So the key message here, I guess, is probably that you want to get across is if you're considering implementing a drone program, reach out to you first and, and talk to you early on in those those beginning <laughs> formative stages uh, so that those sort of mistakes aren't made that have to be rectified later on down the road. Exactly. I'm more than happy. I take phone calls all the time from people all across the country and we can work through those issues. I'm, I'm not a salesperson for any of the aircraft. However, I, I can point you in the right direction so we can get you coming up with your SOPs and your policies and setting up your training program while you're searching for that money to purchase your aircraft. Gotcha. And do you provide any um, guidance on grants that are available for that sort of thing or, or not? Yes. As a matter of fact, we were just working with an entity on the East Coast, um, on the Eastern Seaboard. And if anybody would like help with the grant process, I'd be more than happy to talk with them. Um, interestingly, I was just reading an article this morning where it looks like in the very near future, the federal government is going to basically ban the use of Chinese-made drones. So, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, DJI is the big player with 80% of the market. Um, those won't be funded by grants. And there are, uh, there are some outstanding aircraft that are U.S.-made uh, coming out uh, now um, and in the near future that if you want to go down that grant road, you'd probably want to steer that way. Do you have any idea what the the thought is behind banning Chinese made drones? Yeah, uh, the the big there's there's been a big discussion for a long time whether or not Chinese companies are capturing information and using the information. I did several years at the Pentagon um, working civil military policy, and while I was there, you couldn't put a DVD or a thumb drive into one of the Pentagon computers because there was all kinds of malware on it that were uh, put there when they were manufactured in China, or at least that was the thought. So um, the same idea is with Chinese made drones and DJI has done a very good job telling consumers that they are not using information or seeing information that the drone obtains. Now, the answer that I have not heard them discuss is, can it? Can that drone capture information and send it back through the internet to China? And I'm pretty sure that the answer to that is, yes, it can. They don't do it. They have contracted an auditor and that auditor came out and said, China is, the, is not doing it. DJI is not doing it. Um, the, the problem is, as a peer competitor, um, if all that critical infrastructure is being observed and is accessible, uh, then it becomes a national security risk. Sure. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I, I wouldn't have even considered that uh, before you mentioned it. Yeah, because actually, um, for all the systems to work, you can, and, and DJI said, hey, you can, as a stopgap, you can turn off all those systems that would send back information. But as soon as you do that, they're no longer that great drone. They're a mediocre drone. So, you know, all the bells and whistles that you're getting with it, that you're paying for, it's like, why go down that road if you can't use it? So, yeah. 
So what are some of the biggest roadblocks that you see agencies and, and private security companies running into when it comes to uh, making the decision to implement a drone program? Um, you know, happily, I, I'm here to say that the biggest roadblock that we've had in the um, recent past has been public approbation of our drone programs. But more and more people are seeing drones in their local parks. They see them on the shelf at Best Buy. They see them online. The, people are becoming comfortable um, with drones in the air and their understanding. But uh, when I started getting into the drone space around 2015, 2016, if you use the term drone, people started thinking of a Predator aircraft that was going to be flying around right. 24 hours. Yeah, they're start shooting missiles in their exactly. backyard. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think the general population is comfortable with the fact that, okay, it's, it's not persistent surveillance. They understand the fact that a drone's only going to be up there for 20, 40 minutes tops. So... Um, they're getting more and more comfortable with that. Um, there, there are still privacy, civil rights concerns uh, that go along with airborne aircraft, but those concerns are diminishing. And the more transparent and accountable you are with um, your program, the more success you're going to have introducing it to your community. So you mentioned um, surveillance operations and that sort of thing. I, I'm curious what is the altitude that a drone really needs to fly at in order to uh, not be seen or heard and be able to capture uh, surveillance type uh, material? You know, that's once again, it, it's a loaded question in that if you have a predator <laughs> drone and you got 10 million bucks, um, it, it could be at the upward levels of our atmosphere. But um, for the ones that we're talking about, the ones that most people are using, yeah, yeah. the DJI aircraft, um, to use it under Part 107, you're restricted to under 400 feet um, altitude, and that, and then it's 400 feet above the highest altitude uh, obstacle. So, in theory, if you have an 800 foot building, you could get up to 1,200 feet. Now, realistically, what I've found in operations a sweet spot between I hate to use the term covert because surveillance is probably a bad word in law enforcement. Also, I'd like to say situational awareness um, to gain that situational awareness of, of what's going on below a nice sweet spot is probably between 70 and 150 feet um, okay. for the cameras that, that are on most aircraft that you see. I would think, I mean, obviously I understand the limitations of the camera in relation to that. I would think that flying at that altitude that uh, you know, people would spot that pretty easily. Well, you have to remember, you know, especially when you're talking about time of day, size, um, if you're talking about the Paradinafi, um, I have a, a number of those because those aircraft are extremely quiet. Um, it's uh, probably non-scientifically half uh, the, the sound signature that my Mavic um, creates. Um, it, it's very stealth um, and they're, they're relatively small. Now you fly the thing at night, the, you have a light on it that's on the top. It, it's extremely hard to see. I've done uh, law enforcement uh, helicopter surveillance, you know, 
helicopters are really large um, and we're able to follow guys and they don't know we're anywhere near uh, around them and we're at you know 1200 feet so uh, with a much larger signature hey just me here cutting in for a quick break have you subscribed to the podcast yet if not you need to I'm going to be dropping some more episodes here over the coming weeks, and I don't want you to miss a single one. I've got some awesome guests lined up that I'm sure you're going to want to hear from. So please go to wherever it is that you prefer to listen to podcasts and subscribe to the show. Right now, we're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Castro, iHeartRadio, Breaker, Pocket Casts, Podchaser, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, and Amazon. Now, if there's a place that you prefer to listen to podcasts that wasn't on that list, would you please email me at adam at psi.chat and let me know what that is. I'd be happy to submit the show to that directory. All right, let's go ahead and jump back into the show. Well, I'm curious if you can share with us um, some some uses in particular that, that you've seen. I mean, I know... Uh, myself as having been a, an agency administrator and we kind of, I, I hate to call it a drone program. It really wasn't that it was very informal. We purchased the drone and we had some, some, uh, you know, thoughts behind how we might use it. But I think that there was, um, some space that we left there to say, Hey, there's probably other ways that we could utilize a drone that we haven't even thought of. And after all, this show is called Public Safety Innovators. So I'm, I'm really curious to hear not only what sort of the expected and, and routine uses are that one would expect for a drone program, but, but also, you know, what are some of the really innovative things that you've seen or heard about uh, that people are doing? In the beginning, the publicly accepted way to use a drone was search and rescue. Um, and then that branched out into uh, accident reconstruction, and they'd stretch that into crime scene reconstruction where the aircraft is up and just taking photos of a particular area. What we've done in Los Angeles is we've uh, basically turned the corner on that and said, you know what, we are going to use drones interior and on point, um, which wasn't being done too much um, at the time. And our strategy was we were being called on officer-involved shootings. And we wanted to come up with a way that um, we could reduce or mitigate the risk of an officer-involved shooting. And drones became an ideal way to do that. By putting a drone out in front of the officers, you gave them time and distance to react so that they could formulate a plan and didn't um, have that surprise where the only resource they had to deal with um, whatever approached them was a firearm. So we are using it in the point. And then as a side note to using it as point, I basically used DOD helicopter strategies incorporated into the drone mode in that we can conduct what are called screening operations. So you have your line of effort of somebody searching inside a hallway for a suspect. You can run a drone on the outside of the building, peering in 
on the outside windows to clear the inside as the team moves forward through that building. So you could do screening operations, UAS on point, um, how you integrate UAS in the Overwatch mode, but all that comes to the where we're getting to in the drone space is something that the military is calling manned and unmanned teaming. While and it, okay, while that manned and unmanned teaming predominantly applies to they're talking about helicopters working with UAS on the military side. We're talking about doing um, drones in concert with canine, drones in concert with your bomb squad, drones in concert with your uh, SWAT team so that you can amplify the effects and capabilities of just using one or the other. You now have a synergistic approach to the problem and it's much more efficient. It's much more holistic and you have this overarching view of what's actually occurring. So are you guys actually able to fly these drones in interior spaces? Yes, absolutely. And there and there are drones out there that are purpose-built for just that uh, uh, mission. Okay. Uh, there's one that's called the Loki. There's a manufacturer out here in Laverne, Aardvark Tactical. Um, they're the sole source for the United States. But uh, I have several Loki ones that I train with that uh, I use because there's there's no altitude hold or anything else on there, but they've now come out with the Loki 2, which has altitude hold. It'll hold its position. You can fly interior based on what it sees. And it's just a real durable aircraft that'll take a beating. You can bounce it into the halls. You you know, it, it's a great, oh, wow. and it has internal IR capability. So you send it into a dark warehouse or a dark room. You can see everything in there. That's awesome. What does one of those drones run typically? Well, you know, you could pick up the uh, Loki One, which is two aircraft and a controller, batteries, uh, the charger. Um, that runs about 7000 I believe the Loki Two um, with the new controller and the aircraft, I believe, is in the seven dollars to $10,000 range. Yeah, I mean... That sounds like a lot of money, but when you evaluate really what its capabilities are in comparison to the risk to your officers, I mean, $7,000 is, is nothing yeah. uh, to mitigate that sort of a risk. And, and it goes back to, you know, figure out what you want to do, because um, I spoke to one agency that told me, oh, yeah, we have a community group and they gave us $30,000 for our drone program. And they went out and they bought um a Matrice 600. Well, the Matrice 600 is too big to do anything. It, it was basically configured uh, for the film industry. It'll it'll hold a heavy camera payload, um, but you're not going to put it in an alleyway. You're not going to you know put it in a confined area. And it's like really for that Matrice 600, you could have gotten three Lokis, and the Loki will do outside missions if you're if your primary capability or, or what you've emphasized is putting the aircraft out on point, you know, it would make much more sense to buy three Loki and, and put those out there. Yeah. And there's just so many uses for these drones or unmanned aerial aircraft um, that it, it's just really incredible what you can do. The, the possibilities are really endless. Um, when I was still under sheriff, we had a, a neighboring uh, county 
where a friend of mine was the undersheriff there, and they started utilizing drones, uh, like you mentioned a little bit ago, for uh, traffic accidents. Yeah. And I thought it was absolutely brilliant because what these guys were doing, they stuck a drone in, in the trunk of their uh, traffic deputies' vehicles, and when there was a traffic accident, they'd just go out there, they'd shut both ends of the highway down just for a few minutes so that there was no traffic going through. They'd throw the drone up in the air, and it would fly a pattern. Uh, it only took about five, ten minutes, and then they'd take the drone down, move all the cars off the highway, and let everybody back through, and they were done. Absolutely. I thought it was just genius. I mean, so much safer for everybody and quicker. Uh, you get things cleared out, and, and I would imagine – more accurate, having been a guy that's been on the side of the highway before um, pushing a, a measuring wheel around and, and sketching on a notepad as I go, um, I, I know that there were times my measurements were probably not the most accurate. <laughs> and, and, you know, it gets into aircraft selection. You you can get down to four centimeters if you get an RTK aircraft. And these programs that are out there like PIX4D that'll do the, the mapping for you, you can pinpoint, it'll tell you exactly how far it is from that shell casing to um, the shooter. You know, it's just amazing what, what this stuff can do. Yeah. Do you see that sort of an application being widely accepted amongst law enforcement? You know, especially I would say uh, most of our state law enforcement, state troopers, that sort of thing that are really dealing with um, traffic accidents uh, a lot, or is that still something that is, uh, taking time to be accepted and, and integrated into their practices. I think our vertical is just waiting for the money to do it. I think everybody knows the capability is there, um, but they want um, their own aircraft. So it, it all depends on where you're at and what you're doing. Like I said, every aircraft doesn't do every mission. So there's some competition between, okay, do I want a tactical aircraft that I'm going to be able to boop and snoop and take through the alleyway or under the bed in, in the dark room versus I want a more robust aircraft that will do that and some of the tactical stuff. It'll do the overwatch mode. So it all depends on which way they're going. Um, I think there there's already an acceptance that, you know what, it does it much faster than and cheaper, I think, than if you had like a LIDAR system uh, to, to map your scenes. Um, I listened to one reconstructionist tell me that it would take two hours to basically photo an entire scene with the LIDAR setup start to finish, and you could do the whole thing in 15 minutes with a drone. So, yeah. you know, it's it's kind of a no-brainer. And depending on the drone, it could be cheaper than the, the LiDAR setup. Yeah, you have to really consider some of those ancillary uh, expenses, if you will, uh, that you, you, you risk. So it always amazed me that uh, here in my home state, in Colorado, uh, when I saw this other sheriff's office utilizing those drones in that capacity, it always amazed me that our um, state troopers were not utilizing that. We're talking about a state where there's some vast rural areas that are being covered uh, by very few troopers, and they're they're going everywhere. And uh, you know, it just always amazed me they didn't implement that. And maybe maybe you're right. Maybe it's a just a matter of of time and, and money. 
um, to make that sort of thing happen. But when you consider the the time that's spent on these scenes mapping them out, uh, that can be saved by using a tool like this, and the risk that's mitigated of having your your officer struck by a, a vehicle in traffic uh, while they're out there in the road taking measurements, I would uh, I would think that there would be a huge desire to implement this sort of thing in any law enforcement agency that's dealing specifically with that. Um, and, and, you know, we've talked about a lot of other use cases here as well. Yeah. And, you know, the rub used to be that, oh, if I get the drone and I do it, I don't know how to run the PIX4D program and it's complex and how do I get the ortho mosaics out of the system and blah, blah. But, but now there are companies that have management programs, whether um, uh, two of the big ones are Measure and Drone Sense, and you can basically plot in where you want to take it. And I know Measure will even give you the output orthomosaics for your case. Um, now it's a fee-based service, but um, you know if you don't know how and you don't want to invest on the training side, there are companies out there that'll do it for you. Sure. So we've talked a lot about use cases here for public safety or for law enforcement specifically. Um, but I know you told me before the show that you guys are really working towards focusing on helping out private security as well. I'd love to hear and have you share with the audience um, what sort of use cases you foresee being in the private security sector and how your services, your training can, can help out people that are in that particular industry. Absolutely. Going along with the whole mapping concept, if you have an advance party going out uh, for a venue, um, you can come up within minutes, just like we were saying for the crime scene, um, you could get uh, a pre-scene map to deploy resources and officers right away. Other ways to employ it, um, you know, how do you clear the high ground at these award shows or major events? If the security company has a UAS, they can clear all the high ground. They also provide a force multiplier aspect to your security force. So if you have UAS basically flying a pattern throughout the area, it could reduce your overall physical footprint and save you money on that side. And then what we're trying to do is integrate those. Um, there's a company in Israel called Highlander um, that can take multiple feeds, put it onto your computer, and from an incident command post, um, you could have multiple feeds coming in from uh, different UAS and you have the capability to take control of the, the UAS and uh, move it over. Um, so the very interesting things coming on in, in the uh, near future. Yeah, absolutely. So I wonder if you can share a case study of sorts or a use case um, specifically that you have been involved in, in which a drone was utilized in a way that maybe saved an officer's life or, I don't know. I, I guess I'll leave that open-ended to you. What can you share with us? Uh, why Why would a law enforcement agency be motivated to start a drone program? You know, um, I like to say on, on my side, from, from what we're doing in Los Angeles, when nothing happens, we've succeeded. So, um, you know, if, if we're using a drone on point and we're able to find the suspect, um, which happens routinely, and the suspect knows he's been found. 
and he is able to be taken into custody without any use of force, that's a win for us. Now, specifically, students that I've had call me and tell me about all kinds of incidents. One of my first classes, as soon as they left, they took their aircraft out. There was a lost individual. They were able to launch the drone. And unfortunately, the person had driven their vehicle into lake and um, passed away, but it gave closure to the family. And they told me that they had search teams and everything in the woods looking for the individual. And they would have been there, you know, for, for days, if not weeks, looking for that person and never would have seen them because it was submerged inside the lake. But that vantage point that the drone provided, they were able to give the family closure. That's huge. Now, I was uh, listening to a another podcast you were on uh, a bit ago, and in that podcast, you, you talked about another scenario, which I thought was really neat and, and would love it if you'd share it with us, where there had been a law enforcement agency that had had an encounter with somebody that they thought was armed and, and the drone helped mitigate that situation. Would you talk yeah. to us about that? Yeah, that uh, that incident is uh, Chula Vista PD. They're doing one of the uh, IPPs where they're in a test bed case with um, the FAA and they're being allowed to launch drones beyond visual line of sight um, from a building where they're operating it um, from inside the building. And they were able to go out and they saw an individual who um, was called in saying, hey, there's a man with a gun over at the corner of X and Y and officers deployed, but the drone was um, first on scene and they're calling their program um, drones as a first responder. When the drone got there, um, the drone was able to see the guy take the gun and light a cigarette with it. Um, so it, totally changed the way the officers were able to um, approach the suspect with that particular item. And it was resolved successfully. That's awesome. So now you're not just uh, the the go-to drone guy, but you're also a former law enforcement officer yourself. Is, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I spent uh, 31 years with LAPD um, and I've stayed on as a reserve to still handle the program management aspects of the drone program. Okay. So how exactly did you get the drone book? What, what led you to learn about drones and then take off with this business and uh, start teaching other people and providing the services you do? You know, two things happened around the same time. I had a very close friend and peer from the military. We were both King Air pilots and um, from this, the safety and integration standpoint of drones, um, he took a contract flying drones in Afghanistan. And unfortunately, um, his aircraft collided um, with a uh, what they believed to be was a Predator drone. And it was very tragic. And that was controlled airspace, but there wasn't a lot of communication between the unmanned side and the manned side of the aviation operations that were going on. So, you know, I, I, that piqued my concern, I guess, coming here as a helicopter pilot with all these drones that were flying around. And about a year later, the, uh, we had a city councilman 
Tom LaBanche, who um, was getting inundated by calls that um, drones were flying around the Hollywood sign. And he basically threw his hands up and said, make it stop. So we reached out to the city attorney's office and the city attorney said, well, you know, we don't know much about this aviation stuff. At the time, I was the special projects guy at air support division um, for LAPD. And they said, hey, go help the city attorney out with this. So I became the technical advisor on basically putting together the municipal code that we have to regulate UAS operations in the city of Los Angeles. So from there, um, that counter drone kind of aspect or um, framework, um, then we had a couple cases. And at the same time that was going on, our air support falls under counterterrorism and special operations bureau. Our bureau chief was approached by Seattle PD who tried to start up a program and they didn't get that public approbation piece um, set. So they said, Hey, do you guys want these drones? So he took the drones. And then at the same time that was happening, the cases were starting to come to trial. So I was testifying as an expert and I'm like, you know what? I better learn how to fly these things if I'm going to be testifying as an expert in court. So I started learning how to fly the drones, um, implementing it. And then I had in the back of my mind that at some point, somebody's going to ask me, um, okay, what do we need to do to build a drone drone program since we have these uh, two Dragonfly 6s from Seattle Police Department? Well, that got stalled for a number of years uh, because of the politics. And we didn't, it took a long time for us to build the public approbation for our program. Um, but during that time, um, I, on my own, I started thinking, okay, uh, taking what I know from uh, military aviation operations and the law enforcement aviation operations, how would I build a program? And I started putting those pieces together and then basically created the uh, program operators course. Okay. Man, that was quite an evolution then. It wasn't really just the, you know, here's what I set out to do. And so I, I mean, that was really an evolutionary process. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. That's, that's neat. Um, tragic story. Thank you for sharing that. But uh, what a neat story and how you evolved to, to where you are now and, and doing what you're doing. So now, so now that you are where you are, what is it that's driving your passion then to continue doing what you're doing and evolve uh, even further? You know, just seeing uh, how things are being implemented and the change that's occurring um, is just fascinating to me. Uh there, there's changes every day. I, I like to, uh, there was an old commercial, I think it was EDS or something like that. That Basically they, they had this commercial where that's why I build uh, planes in the air. And it's like, I, I correlate that to what we're doing now because the rules aren't set. So you're building a program without all the rules in place and you have to stay up on it. And that's the biggest thing. You really need to look at the uh, the people that you want to put in your program because they're going to have to be self-starters and want to stay engaged with what's happening. There were some to-dos that the FAA in their Appropriations um, Act almost a year ago now um, came out with that 
that they have some do outs that they haven't answered the question on uh, how, how to fly model recreation and, and what we need to do to be able to fly under that umbrella. And then uh, I, when I'm teaching cops, especially on my own department, talking about our municipal code, it's like cops want things black and white. Well, it's like, well, there's actually three ways you can fly an aircraft. You could fly under the public use umbrella. You can fly under part 107, which is the commercial operations, or you can fly under model recreation. So first you got to figure out what rules the guy's flying under and then go and, you know, they want it black and white, but you really have to be the technical expert and your UAS um, pilots can be that conduit to give you that level of expertise when you're either doing counter drone operations or running your own operations. And I just find that fascinating and, and it's mentally stimulating to keep up with all this. And, and it's just been great. Helping to demystify and, and bring clarity to the confusion. Absolutely. So just to kind of start to wrap things up here, I, you know, I'd like to ask you, uh, what would you say um, to our audience who are either, you know, potentially law enforcement administrators or uh, private security company uh, owners themselves that are thinking of implementing a drone program. What is the most important question that they should be asking themselves right now as they're considering that? Uh, the most important question is what do you want to do with the aircraft? You really have to do your gap analysis and say, okay, um, what role am I trying to fill? And then work backwards from there. Too many times it's like, okay, I want a drone um, operation because I want um, an airborne capability. It's like, okay, that's a very broad statement. What airborne capability do you want? Do you want close support where you're working with ground guys or are you just trying to facilitate um, opening up the highway um, because uh, much easier skill set, much less repetition. Um, now you want to go down the tactical um, road. You need to remember that for attack, the tactical environment is volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguously. When I went through uh, the Army War College, they kind of beat that into your head. It's like VUCA. And it's like, okay, well, what does that mean? Well, that means that uh, with an autonomous aircraft, it may do something that you don't want to do. So you have to think about that when you're doing aircraft purchasing. Is that autonomous aspect of my aircraft good for me or can it hurt me somewhere down the road? So um, it, it's and the answer is actually both. You need to know how to override that. And all that comes with training. And you have to think about um, providing too many people are saying, I want a drone program, but um, I'm going to pick you to be my my drone guy. And oh, by the way, um, you're the training coordinator. You're the complaint sergeant. You're the this, you're the that, you're the other. And then, oh, by the way, if you want to do man-to-man teaming with K-9, you, you guys have to train together to do that. How are you going to establish the time um, to do it? When you commit to your program, you have to commit wholeheartedly. Give those officers the resources to be able to become the technical experts that they need to be to operate safely in the national airspace. Sure. So now obviously, I mean, there are other companies out there that, that provide the same or similar services as you do. And I'm curious if you can, what you can tell us as far as, you know, what, what should somebody be considering uh, when it comes to evaluating uh, a company to work with and implementing their drone program or training you know, like, like yourself, what, what should they be looking for? 
When, when you're looking at training companies, what I like to, uh, to say is look at the uh, trainer credentials that that individual has. Um, there are no standards right now. Like I said, it's, it's an evolving community for the UAS environment where you know they don't have uh, certified flight instructors for drones. However, if your company has certified flight instructors, um, that's one above. It's like that's the FAA's acknowledgement that you know how to train the aviation component. So uh, they should at least have a couple CFIs on staff. I'm a CFI. I have several CFIs um, that work for me. Um, every class it has a lead instructor that's a certified flight instructor. For the law enforcement uh, mode, um, it is an added plus if you have somebody um, that is a post certified instructor. Um, we have master uh, post-certified master instructors and um, academy level instructors that go out. Um, everybody has to be an academy level instructor to teach what we do. Other things to look at is um, it's very easy to see the level and depth of knowledge that um, your company has by going on the FAA's website and seeing how many waivers have they applied for. Because a lot of times you'll see these people that apply for waivers um, or teach how to apply for a waiver and you'll go online with the FAA and it, it's open source. You, you can go right on their website and it's like, okay, you're teaching me how to do a web to uh, get a waiver under part 107 and you've never gotten a part 107 waiver. That's kind of interesting, but that's yeah, a good point. Yeah. It, it's right there. Go look it up. Um, they should at least have night waivers because uh, we in the law enforcement uh, or public safety environment are a 24-7 operation. So you're going to need a night waiver. Other things are over people come up all the time. Now, if you have a COA, there's there's two ways to fly. You know, has that person applied for a COA? Do they have proof that, they, that they've written a COA uh, to operate as a public use operator? If you're going to go down that road, th there are those checks and balances that are right there on the web that you can look up and see. And then, you know, get, get some recommendations from people, ask them for uh, who they've trained and, and say, Hey, how'd, the, how'd this guy do for you? Yeah, those are, those are great considerations. Well, Tony, uh, I'd love to just turn it over to you at this point, kind of open ended and go ahead and just plug your stuff. Um, let us know how uh, our audience can get a hold of you. Where do they find you and uh, get in touch? You know, um, I take phone calls all the time. If anybody wants to call, they have a drone question. My number is 949-466-3312. Um, I love to talk drone stuff all the time. I like to hear what problems people are having. Um, I like to actively work through um, issues uh, that our community is having. I have a number of courses. Uh, if you look at my website, it's uh, www. Uh, tactical-drone.com. And then we also have an online version uh, or an online learning portal where you could learn how to um, get your 107 or you have to do your recertification. We have that e-learning available and that's at tacticaldrone.net. So either one of those, love to have anybody that's listening come to one of my classes. I also do my tactical um, drone class um, with uh, APSA, Airborne Public Safety Association. We do those uh, several times a year. I'm hoping things open up soon um, with all the COVID uh, uh, closures that are out there, but I hope to see people in person and reach out to me and 
any question. I, I love to work through issues or places where people are stuck or hear about what they're trying to do with UAS. Awesome. And folks, I'll go ahead and put all of Tony's contact information in the show notes down below. Tony, it's been awesome having you on the show. I really appreciate it. Fascinating stuff. Um, thanks for sharing with us. Thanks for having me and I've really enjoyed it. Hey everybody, thanks for checking out this episode of Public Safety Innovators Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please head over to my website at publicsafetyinnovatorspodcast.com or simply psi.chat where you can check out episode notes and other episodes from the show. While you're there, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or really anywhere else that you prefer to listen to podcasts. I would greatly appreciate if you could help other people find the show by leaving a review wherever it is that you prefer to listen to the show. I'd love to hear from you if you have feedback about the show, a suggestion on a guest, or maybe you're a public safety innovator yourself and would like to be a guest on the show. Please head over to my contact page on the website and you can submit that information there or just email me at adam at psi.chat. All right, I'll catch you on the next episode.